So we are in the middle of a series for Lent. And how many of you, how many of you tried a fast for Lent? Attempted a flat fast? Um, how many of you tried it but have since quit so you don't want to raise your hand, right? Because we're, we're in that hard part. It's kind of exciting at first to fast and, and to integrate something into our routine that's out of routine, to intentionally kind of wake us up to the moment, to what this is all about. And so we get to this point, which we are a week and a half in, and suddenly the routine has lost its excitement, and now we're just wondering, are we committed enough to keep going? Did we mean it? And what were we crazy in what we gave up? Because maybe we can't do what we thought we could do, and, and we're just kind of in that moment. And Lent is all about the disruptive, uncomfortable, uh, wonderful moments that we can have with God. That's the point. Fasting makes you uncomfortable, right? That's why you fast, to be uncomfortable. And so we are in the middle of a series called Tested. And so we spent last week talking about the actual word um, because Lent is kind of our parallel to Christ walking in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and experiencing a testing or a parazzo. And this parazzo is what we enter into. We want to be tested because as it's used in the Greek, the test is to endeavor to discover our character. Okay? It's, it's easy to be good on the good days, just like I tell couples when they get married, when they say, I do, it's easy to say it today. Today, I mean, everything's been crafted and built to make this a phenomenal celebration. But when it gets down the road and the excitement's gone, then you really have to face yourself and your character and your commitment is revealed. And that's what we want with Lent. We want to do that digging because sometimes we can get off the path and not realize it. Sometimes we can get so far away that we actually think we're on the path, and that's when we're in real trouble. Amen? So tested is what we want to be in this time, and we submit to that. And as all of its discomfort that it brings, we, we are ultimately preparing for Easter, when we know Christ will be lifted up, as the language we'll hear in the Scripture today. And this lifted up, the way that the gospel writer, our fourth gospel we call John, uses this word, the lifting up is Three things all at once. It's Christ lifted up on the cross, Christ lifted up from the grave, and Christ lifted up to God, all of which are given as this one idea of lifted up. And we're preparing for that. Are you ready yet? That's the question that might haunt us. Are we ready to stand before the cross? And uh, we want to be better and drawn deeper into Jesus Christ. Amen? That's why you're here. And I, I just praise you for that. Even if you're not exactly sure what you're getting into, you're just, you're, you're in the right place. We're all trying to figure this out. Um, so today we're going to hear the passage from two different translations. And the goal is to hear this most familiar piece of scripture you've ever heard with fresh ears, hopefully. that You can hear it again, hear it anew. And uh, first you need to know a couple of things about the gospel of John to allow the gospel to speak to you. So the Gospel of John uses all these double meanings. There's all these double meanings. Uh, passage before the passage today, Jesus talks about the temple. They think he's talking about a building. He's talking about his body. Today it's going to be darkness and light. And so Nicodemus is going to come at night in the dark. And there's a whole meaning behind that. And it's also referenced in chapter 19 of John. Nicodemus is mentioned as the one who came to Jesus in the dark at night. And then Jesus is going to invite in uh, to Nicodemus' life, and not only his, but all the leaders that he represents. He's going to offer a new way to see light. He's going to offer a new way to see things. And where today Nicodemus is going to struggle and resist 
to accept that. Next week's passage that we'll focus on is the very next passage in John where he finds a Samaritan woman at a well who receives the same invitation and she accepts it. So where this great Jewish leader, this great religious leader struggles, this Samaritan woman succeeds. And so it's, it's this invitation we all have. Jesus doesn't talk about being born again the way we talk about it. He's not talking about baptism. And so that's why I want you to hear the scripture with fresh ears. And you may say, well, if it's not about that, then what, if, what is it about? And that's exactly the kind of question you want to hold in your head uh, as we hear the scripture. And so try to hear where it says born again as born from above. And I'll explain that in a moment. So are you ready for John 3? All right. I'll turn it to Mark, and then when he's finished reading, we'll have our moment of silence as well to soak it in. Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do these miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born anew, it's not possible to see God's kingdom. Nicodemus asked, How is it possible for an adult to be born? It's impossible to enter the mother's womb for a second time and be born, isn't it? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be surprised that I said to you, you must be born anew. God's spirit blows wherever it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. It's the same with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said, how are these things possible? Jesus answered, you are a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? I assure you that we speak about what we know and testify about what we have seen. But you, dear sisters and brothers, don't receive our testimony. If I have told you all about earthly things and you all don't believe, how will you all believe if I tell you all about heavenly things? No one has gone up to heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the human one. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up so that everyone believes in him will have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him isn't judged. Whoever doesn't believe in him is already judged, because they don't believe in the name of God's only son. This is the basis for judgment. The light came into the world, and people loved darkness more than the light, for their actions are evil. All who do wicked things hate the light and don't come to the light for fear that their actions will be exposed to the light. Whoever does the truth comes to the light so that it can be seen that their actions were done in God.
I hope something stuck out to you in your time of silence. Maybe just a phrase that you hadn't noticed before or something that you don't know why it's in your head. I encourage you to write it down and just sit with that because I think it's an ancient practice of reading the scripture as allowing the scripture to speak. And so you can spend time on that later because I may not focus on what the Spirit uh, pointed out to you. So we've heard this passage many times or at least one part of it. Amen? How many of you have it memorized? Yeah, you can raise your hand. You can be proud of that. You worked hard for that. Your Sunday school teachers will be so proud that you have it memorized. It's odd when we think about it that we focus in on the one sentence amidst the whole passage because it's a whole scene created by the gospel writer to communicate about a particular idea. And long before this was written, long before we went back hundreds of years later and added verse notes and, and chapter notes, so then we, you know, we divide it up now is what we do. But before, it was just one long story. So memorizing is great, but if we lose sight of what's around it, we can miss the message. And so I hope that you were able to hear it again uh, in a different way. And we'll talk about this, uh, this word, uh, anothen, here in a moment. But have you ever heard the rest of the passage before, verses 18 through 21? Had you ever heard those about the truth and the light and the darkness? Because... It's interesting that in our lectionary, which we follow, which there's a whole calendar, it's ancient, and it tells us what four verses to, to focus on. And the idea is that every church is focusing on the same things, so that when you go out and encounter other sisters and brothers, you all have the same things on your minds and can talk about it. Well, the lectionary doesn't include verses 18 through 21, which is the whole summary of the passage, of what the point is. And it's just very fascinating how even the ancient church sometimes leaves out part that I think is pretty important that John was kind of pointing to. And so Jesus, what we're going to talk about is what's happening. Jesus is pointing out the reason for the rejection of the religious system of the day, which is represented by Nicodemus. They are uncomfortable with what Jesus is doing, how he's doing it, and for whom he's doing it. Uh, now know that in the end of chapter 2, Jesus has just cleansed the temple. So in John, it happens right at, the, right at the outset. In the other Gospels, it's near the end. In John, it's right at the beginning. And this monumental moment is what they think actually got him killed. Because it's one thing to say something and to represent, have a following. But to go into the temple, the epicenter of the system, and completely disrupt it and grind it to a halt and drive people out with whips, and then to proclaim that if you tore down the temple, that he could rebuild it in three days, is pushing the line far beyond what they were comfortable with. So they struggle with this, obviously. It'd be like Jesus coming in and completely undoing everything we've ever known about church. Everybody, everything, it's gone. And then asking if he can come and speak to the church, we'd be like, no, you need to go. You're just, we, we kick people out like you all the time because um, we've got something going on here and you need to be a part of what we're doing. We would have that tendency, yes? You with me? Okay, good, you're with me. So he says, I'll tear down the temple. And they, they say, well, it, take 40, it takes us 46 years to build the temple. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? And then the gospel writer gives us a little parenthetical statement that he was talking about his body, not the actual temple. So something about the system itself and what represents it, if it was destroyed, Jesus could rebuild the whole thing in his body in three days. We know a little bit about what three days and rebuilding the body means. But do we understand the gravity of the whole idea of the faith and the epicenter now not being a building, now being a person. And that's where Jesus is inviting Nicodemus, or inviting all of Israel to hear. But Nicodemus, who's in charge of the leaders, 
uh, comes to him at night. Now, it also says at the end of chapter 2, a lot of people believed in the signs Jesus was doing, and they believed in his name. But Jesus didn't quite trust them yet and didn't give his life to them um, because they were human. And the capacity of humans is, well, we can be pretty big messes, yes? Even those of us who might go to the temple can be big messes. So Nicodemus comes out to have conversation with Jesus at night. No one's seeing, but as John says, he's in the dark. And so his motives aren't revealed explicitly, but it's easy to put it together when you have the whole picture. He's echoing the previous people saying, Jesus, it's obvious you're from God because of the signs you're doing. Exactly what the people said. But I want, now before he can even get the next thing out, Jesus offers him this insight um, to come into the light, to be born a Nothan. Now, Nicodemus knows a little when he comes to Jesus. He knows that God's involved. He knows that much. But he's trying to understand God's work inside of his own system, which is where he's going to struggle, which is where we struggle. So Jesus invites him into an entirely new system, a new framework, so to speak, not his current way, but the way of God from above, the way of the kingdom. And so the word we come to as anothen, which means uh, from above yeah, there we go. Anothen, from above, from the beginning, or again, or anew. So he says, you must be born anothen. Now, Nicodemus stops at the first literal option and says something pretty funny. Jesus, I imagine, was laughing a little bit, like, seriously, dude? What? Can I enter my mother's womb again? Right? He's, I, I, Jesus, I wonder if he just thought for a minute, like, where do I even go with this guy? Like, where do you go from that? Can I enter my mother's womb again? Well, let's talk about where we struggle. Because this idea of being born again, it's a great image, and we use it. We talk about baptism, but sometimes we can remove it from where it originates, and we can make it into something else. So some people in the church make it one thing, and some people outside of the church make it another. And figure out what you're at, and I invite you to just rethink for a minute. So for some people, born again is, some people are born again, and some are not. And so therefore, those who are born again are acceptable and good, and those who are not, aren't. And we sometimes have that born again. Sometimes we say, well, you're born again, and when you experience that in baptism, you're born again, and you're forever born again, and, and that's it. That's, that's the goal, is to be born again. Some others say, well, you can be born again, but you might have to be born again again, right? Or you might have to be born again again again. Have you heard this? You might, have you been born again again again? And then people outside of the church might say, born again? They're with Nicodemus what are you talking about? That's the crazy people who are born again, right? And we've probably maybe been in one of these places. And so sometimes we can lose the essence of what Jesus is saying, because it's not about baptism. It's not what he's getting at. He's going to introduce the idea of living water and spirit and what he's here to do, and later he's going to breathe the Holy Spirit on the disciples. And so in John 3, notice that Jesus is inviting Nicodemus to stop worshiping their framework which is the temple. The temple was built for God, but they're not worshiping God. They're worshiping the temple, which is what Jesus cleaned up. See, they had set up shop in the place where the Gentiles could come and pray, and they were instead exploiting the poor by making them change money. And if you don't have much money anyway, and you got to pay the taxes on the money to get the temple money, to have the right money, then you end up paying more than you get in return, and you end up being more poor than when you showed up, all for the purpose of coming and being in the presence of God. You see where the system's a little broken or it's exploitive. And Jesus comes in and cleanses the whole thing, shuts the whole thing down of just 
for a moment. And then he invites them to see it in an entirely new way. Now, they worship a building. They worship a system. In their effort, maybe originally to honor God, but maybe they've gotten lost. Because God's Son stands right before them, and they completely miss it. So what's, what's the disconnect? They either are trying to search for God or they're not. I believe they are. I just think they've gotten lost. If they truly saw God's Son come in, they recognize this is who He was, and He cleansed the temple, what would have been their reaction? Would they have been mad? They might have been shocked. Like, Whoa, I didn't expect that. But they might have said, well, I'm sure God's Son has got reasons. Let's hear it, right? Not from the sake of trying to get Him to fit in, but trying to get ourselves on the same page. And yet, we struggle with that. We, uh, we might be shocked if Jesus came in and, and cleansed our church, right? Cleansed me, cleansed your heart, cleansed your life. We might be a bit shocked at some of the things that we're like, I didn't expect that. But if you really believe that it's God at work, you're excited, right? Even amidst the pain. If you're not excited and it really is God, it's because we've gotten a little lost. We're in the dark. We want to see things in the light, yes? Do you really? Exactly as they truly are, revealed in the light. If you simply want to continue to be you, and you're comfortable with you, then you're probably going to resist a little bit. Or maybe you have limits. We used to have a practice, and I used to tell youth group, to imagine Jesus was coming to the front to then talk about all of our deepest, darkest sins and tell them to everybody. Would you try to stop him? Right? You, you can tell one part Jesus, but don't tell him about that. Right? We do this. We have our limits. Now, we especially resist when it's uncomfortable. When the new thing might destroy all that we have come to think it's all about. If it were the temple of today, whatever it is, whatever it is for you, you might react pretty strongly. You might come to Jesus not to learn, but to try to get Jesus to get on the same page as you. To get in, get in the barriers, get in the boundaries, Jesus. John says we seek the darkness. Jesus says we seek the darkness instead. We all do this. It's a human tendency. It is safe in the dark because people don't know what's really going on, and we can fool ourselves, and we can fool others, and we even think we can fool God. And this all comes from imagery in Genesis 3. John loves Genesis. In Genesis 3, the, the two people, they eat of the fruit, and then they cover themselves, right, because they realize that, that they're naked, and they do what when God comes onto the scene? They hide. They, they cover themselves. They hide in the dark because they can hide from God. See how they're so lost already? And we do this. The dark gives us a sense of control. Amen? We can let people in to know the true us at our pace. Well, when we have secretive conversations about other people, this is the work of the darkness. If you aren't saying it to them, you're using darkness. When we speak and act differently at church than we do outside of church, we're seeking the dark. We're controlling what people see. We think we're controlling what God sees, maybe. Because we sometimes think that only God's at church, right? God's only at church. Yeah, when we refuse to confront our own anger and emotion about something, we'd rather just blame someone else, right? Deflect it. Maybe it's a fear. It's definitely a topic. 
and something maybe we don't understand, someone we don't understand. We like to convince ourselves we have it all together. We like to convince ourselves we have all the answers, and we know exactly what to do and where to go to find them. And when we think we have it all figured out and we've convinced we have the answer, I ask you, are you experiencing joy in your certainty, in your system? Are you experiencing love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, trustworthiness, gentleness, and self-control? If you're squirming a little bit in your sense of your certainty, the Spirit's trying to tell you something. Now, if we submit to the Spirit, we have to say yes to something we cannot see. Does that frighten anybody? Am I the only one? Okay, got a couple more. It's scary. You don't, you can't control the Spirit, can you? We can't understand it. We might, if we're lucky, like the wind and the trees here at rustling. We don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. It could take us anywhere. The Spirit does this. You can only say yes and allow the Spirit to move you beyond yourself, your system, beyond your temple, your framework, your certainty, and into something new and entirely light and life. And giving up all control, letting go of ego. This is hard. This is what Lent is for. Now, those who have said yes, picture someone in your mind where you're like, this is the epitome of someone who said yes. Can you picture them? You can close your eyes if you need to. Picture this person and the way they live, the way they are. Let me ask you, do they exude love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, trustworthiness, gentleness, and self-control? These people that you're thinking of, they don't seem to get worried about the stuff we get worried about, do they? It's as if they're a part of something else entirely, another kingdom, another way of thinking. And you can open up your eyes, and I invite you to hear the truth. Jesus leads us into light, the light of God, and into the life from above, an entirely new reality, here and present, right now. Now, it begins simply by this. If you're thinking, I'm new to this and I don't quite understand, all you need to know is this. Acknowledge your need for God. That's it. Cry out to God. I need you. That's, that's the step when God is actually allowed in. And then you're born from above into a new way of seeing. And like a baby, you have to grow, and it's a lifelong process. It takes a lifetime for us to get out of our framework to get out of our system and out of our egos. Amen? Let us examine ourselves this Lent and recognize where we have clung to darkness, where we cling, and let us confess to God and then accept the invitation to be a person of the light, that we might receive a life lived with God here and now. And to hear this invitation once again, I'm going to invite Mark up to read this from the message. It's a different translation. It's not going to sound anything like you're used to. And I invite you to simply read and hear the message from above. There was a man of the Pharisee sect, Nicodemus, a prominent leader among the Jews. Late one night, he visited Jesus and said, 
Rabbi, we all know you're a teacher straight from God. No one could do all the God-pointing, God-revealing acts that you do if God weren't in on it. Jesus said, you're absolutely right. Take it from me. Unless a person is born from above, it's not possible to see what I'm pointing to, to God's kingdom. How can anyone, Nicodemus said, be born who has already been born and grown up? You can't re-enter your mother's womb and be born again. What are you saying with this born from above talk? Jesus said, you're not listening. Let me say it again. Unless a person submits to this original creation, the wind hovering over the water creation, the invisible moving the visible, a baptism into a new life, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. When you look at a baby, it's just that, a body you can look at and touch. But the person who takes shape within is formed by something you can't see and touch, the spirit, and becomes a living spirit. So don't be surprised when I tell you that you have to be born from above, out of this world, so to speak. You know well enough how the wind blows this way and that. You hear it rustling through the trees, but you have no idea where it comes from or where it's headed next. That's why, that, that's the way it is with everyone born from above, by the wind of God, the spirit of God. Nicodemus asked, what do you mean by this? How does this happen? Jesus said, you're a respected teacher of Israel and you don't know these basics? Listen carefully, I'm speaking sober truth to you. I speak only of what I know by experience. I give witness only to what I have seen with my own eyes. There is nothing secondhand here, no hearsay. Yet instead of facing the evidence and accepting it, you all procrastinate with questions. If I tell you all the things that are plain as the hand before your all's face, and you all don't believe me, what use is there in telling you all of the things you all can't see, the things of God? No one has ever gone up into the presence of God except the one who came down from that presence, the Son of Man. In the same way that Moses lifted the serpent in the desert so people could have something to see and then believe, it is necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up. And everyone who looks up to him, trusting and expectant, will gain a real life, eternal life. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go, go to all of the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind Son of God when introduced to him. This is the crisis we're in. Godlight streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, 
addicted to denial and illusions, hates godlike and won't come near it. They fear a painful exposure. But anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes godlike, so the work can be seen for the godwork it is. God's people said, amen. <laughs>